the way we do weddings makes no sense. <laughs> We've crafted what is, for many women, a nightmare scenario. Let me just spell out the logistics for you and tell me if you agree. Everyone you know is going to stand and watch you walk in heels. <laughs> People all traveled here, and if it's a letdown, they're going to be ticked. People you love, everybody you know, some people you hate. And you're going to be wearing the most expensive dress you'll ever wear in your life. You'll be holding an expensive bouquet of flowers, which is of no help. We're all just going to watch you walk. No pressure. And meanwhile, the dude, he's wearing pants and shoes. He didn't have to walk there. He took the side door with the pastor. <laughs> he doesn't even have to carry the rings. We even listed a toddler to do that. <laughs> Why do we do this? It doesn't make any sense. To use the seminary term, what you're seeing at a wedding ceremony, I mean, in my interpretation, is an eschatological reenactment. That's a fancy way of saying that it is a picture of revelation. It is the moment that the bride, that is the church, that's all of us, are united with the groom, that's Jesus, forevermore. So when the bride enters, we all rise and we look to her because we see our hopes represented in her. We see our reflection in her. We see the hope of our souls walking down to, to a representative who stands there representing Jesus himself. He is Christ and we are the church. And when the two of them together are, are there at the altar, she's looking into the eyes of her provider, her savior and her king forevermore. We all look at her because we are the church. We look at him because he's Jesus and his tears flood his eyes because he loves his bride the way that Jesus loves us. And there's gonna come a beautiful, glorious, sweet day when we will be at the altar and we will look at him. We pray to him with our eyes closed today, but then we'll look at him with eyes open and we'll be with him forever. We'll be loved by him forever. We'll be provided by him forever. We'll be provided for and protected and loved forever by Jesus. Oh, yeah. Amen. Amen. That's why we do weddings the way we do. That's what a wedding ceremony is a picture of. It is an eschatological reenactment. Ephesians chapter 5 opens with a call for us to imitate Christ through self-sacrifice, a fragrant offering to God. And verse 21 of Ephesians 5 tells us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In the original Greek text, According to the authoritative Novum Testamentum, it's actually the same sentence as verse 22. So this call to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is in the same sentence as verse 22, which specifically addresses wives and husbands. So in the context of the church, we submit to one another. In the context of marriage, I'm going to get two words into today's text, and my feminist friends are going to be ready to harpoon me. But it's because today's text is often misunderstood, totally underestimated. Pastor Jesse, are you, are you seriously about to read Ephesians 5.22, whose first two words are wives submit in this culture? 
in this day, in this age? Are you, are you really going to take an orthodox biblical view of marriage? I mean, D Jesse, don't you know it is current year? It is fill in the blank with whatever integer it is as though that's a moral argument. Do you know what year it is, Jesse? Are you really going to take a biblical stance on marriage? Yes. This is what the Bible says. Now, if, if, if you object to this model for marriage, you're free to go back to whatever you were doing before. It's like what Dave Ramsey says about debt. You can always go back to debt. That's easy. Here's what I submit to you. Don't knock it till you've tried it. Because this biblical model for marriage actually puts your marriage where it's supposed to be, and that is a reenactment of the gospel, a picture of salvation itself. All right, my very first counseling appointment as lead pastor of Highlands Community Church was for a couple who had mutual restraining orders against each other. And when you open up to this text, a common response, especially from the wives, is, are you kidding me? But I've seen time and time again both in my own marriage and in marriages that I've given counsel to, that this text saves everything. That same couple today bought a brand new house, was madly in love once again, to the glory of the gospel. This is a model for marriage that works, right? It's because husbands have to act like Jesus by this model. Brides represent the church by this model. So don't knock it till you've tried it. And most importantly of all, whether you're married or not, today's text indicates what marriage actually means, what it's actually for. It's a picture of the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ in your heart and soul today, my prayer is that you would be saved today, that today would be your engagement day. Would you look at Ephesians chapter five, beginning in verse 22 with me now. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. This mystery is profound that I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I carry into the first verses of the subsequent chapter because I believe that they are built upon the previous verses, the final verses of chapter five. The best thing you can do for your children is have an amazing God-honoring marriage. When you have an Ephesians five marriage, you have Ephesians six children. 
They know the gospel because they've seen it personified. I know Christ. I've seen him exemplified in both of my parents. My father has acted like Christ, my parents' marriage. My mother has acted like the church, my parents' marriage. So I know the church. I know the gospel. I see it demonstrated in the way that my dad loves my mom. I know what it's like to be in church because I've seen that personified and lived out in the holy walk, God, walk before God that my mom has carried out in the context of their marriage. The best thing you can do for your children is have an Ephesians 5 God-honoring marriage. These instructions tell us this command is the one from the commandment that came with the blessing. Not every, no, no commandment really has to come with a blessing. Like there's no blessing associated with the commandment not to murder. Have you noticed that? Right? It, like you don't get free coffee for not committing murder. All right? Don't commit murder. And if you abide by this, if you can hold back on the murder, you get coffee. Like God's in no, he's under no obligation to provide blessings along with commandments. Why? Because he's God. Like he's sovereign. He's in charge. He's in control. It is fully his prerogative to just give commands and we obey them or we don't. This is a commandment that actually comes with a blessing. If you honor your father and mother, go well with you. He's, he's, he's evoking the precedent of this commandment that children would honor, obey their parents. And it comes with this promised blessing that you would have long life in the land. This word honor, obey, it's important to distinguish this from the previous text. Wives are not told to obey their husbands, they are told to submit to their husbands. The word obey is used in chapter six to describe children obeying their parents. And the call to honor your father and mother in verse two of chapter six, I don't believe that ever expires. You're always to honor your father and mother. Now, the previous chapter, we see them, see husband and wife leaving their father and mother, cleaving to their spouse and becoming one. So you no longer obey your parents, but you still have to honor them. Honor your father and mother. Some translations render this word provoke. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. They, they render it stir up. Don't stir up anger, angst in your children, but instead bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Children, obey your parents. Honor your father and mother. This is right before God. You've seen this in one of the commandments, honor your father and mother. You've seen that it also comes with a blessing if you do. Now let's go back to verse 22. Who's ready to be offended today? <laughs> let's go to verse 22. All right, my feminist friends, please keep your harpoons sheathed until I've made my case. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as, say this next word with me, Christ is the head of the, say it with me, church. I'm gonna make the case that wife, wifely submission, husbandly leadership is about Christ and the church. That this text is all about Christ and the church. Okay, you've seen it here in verse 23, Christ in the church, verse, the very next verse. Now as the, say it with me, church submits to, say it with me, Christ. Also wives should submit and everything to their husbands. The very next verse, husbands love your wives as, say it with me, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Look at verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And if you think I'm taking interpretive liberty, just look at verse 32. 
right? Paul says overtly, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Say it with me. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you think this text refers to Christ and the church? <laughs> I agree. Why does the wife submit to her husband? It's because he represents Christ in the marriage. She represents the church in the marriage. She represents the fruit of the gospel personified, the saved ones. That's whom she represents. That's the role that she plays in the context of the marriage. Of course, she represents Christ as an individual in her own walk with God. In the context of her marriage relationship, the part that she plays is that of the church. The part that the husband plays is that of Christ. This does not mean that the husband is in any way more qualified than she. Rather, he represents Christ, she represents the church, and the two of them together personify and depict the gospel itself. It's quite beautiful. This is also the sole means by which God has ordained the procreation of the human species. The ultimate expression of love between a husband and a wife produces new life. Praise God for that. Likewise, Christ's presence in his church produces new life. Praise God for that. Christ and the church are representatives for husbands and wives. This is why the wife submits to the husband. We as Highlands Community Church would never insist upon Christ submitting to us. Why? Because we are the church. He is Christ. There's nothing in this text that commands husbands to force their wives to submit. It does not say husbands subjugate your wives. Rather, what does it say? It says wives submit to your husbands. In my marital relationship, my wife submits to my leadership. And this is not because she needs to. She is a strong-willed, fiery, spitfire of a brilliant woman. Okay? She does not need me, but she chooses to. She can get by just fine without me. She was a, she was a missionary. She's an undercover missionary herself in Malaysia. She was assaulted and almost raped twice. Okay? She got by just fine. She doesn't need me. But that fiery woman follows my lead. Why? She's really submitting to the word of God when she does this. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. She's really submitting to God when she submits to my leadership. Now, do you think I take that task lightly? That holy woman of God following my lead? That's no small task. What does that do to my standards for holiness? What does that do to my walk with God? I must be a man worthy of leading such a woman. So, my feminist friend, don't knock this till you've tried it, because by this standard, you get to tell men to act like nothing short of Jesus himself. You want to see men raise their standards? Take on an Ephesians 5 view of marriage, and then the man must look like Jesus to be worthy of your hand. My wife submits to my leadership. It's not because she needs me. It's because she's really submitting to God. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Yeah, but Pastor Jesse, what if my husband's an idiot? <laughs> it's a good question, Susan. <laughs> Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, because this theme of wifely submission doesn't just occur in Ephesians 5, it's elsewhere in Scripture too. 
Here's 1 Peter chapter 3. It reiterates the same kind of teaching and gives further exploration into why. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. This is exactly the case in Lee Strobel, the author of The Case for Christ and The Case for a Creator. He was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune and his wife was saved. He was a militant atheist, but he could just observe the radical transformation in his, life, in his wife's life. And so he took on to investigate the gospel itself because he saw it represented in his wife. And now he's a pastor today. These verses are absolutely true. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The example of Sarah and Abraham is fascinating because sometimes Abraham was a moron. He led the marital relationship, sometimes directly into chaos. They would arrive at a new town. He would tell the leadership there that Sarah was his sister, and so she'd be thrown into the concubine, right? This was uh, thrown in as a concubine. This was terrible of Abraham. Look at the compromising position that he's put Sarah in. But then what would God do? God would protect Sarah from Abraham's mistakes. This is tremendous faith on Sarah's part. She is trusting God by submitting to her husband when he's wrong. She would answer to God for whether or not she would follow her husband's lead. Now her husband would answer to God for how he led her. You see? My wife submits to me, and she does so with the, the understanding that this is basic organizational leadership. A marriage is a tiny two-person organization. Every organization needs a leader that falls to me. The way that my wife interprets this passage, that means that when things go wrong, it is completely my fault. <laughs> She's a smart woman. She points to Ephesians 5. It's on you. My wife submits to my leadership because she's submitting to Scripture itself. Look at verse 7 of 1 Peter 3. <clears throat> this is one single verse with three profound theological points, all in one verse. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay? My feminist friend, please don't be mad. Put the harpoon away once again about this weaker vessel comment. Let's talk about what that means. Weaker vessel? I'll show you a weaker vessel, pastor. <laughs> I am... The cook, in my, I cook for my family. So ladies, I can teach this passage. <laughs> and I have this gumbo pot, all right? Have you ever made gumbo? It starts with a roux, R-O-U-X, all right? You put your flour in the pan with the bacon fat, and you take a whisk, and on high heat, you stir and stir. I've got burns on my fingers from making roux for gumbo. And then right before the flour scorches, you deluge it with water, chicken broth, and that way, that's, what, that's the color of gumbo. That's where it comes from. Now, all the whisking at the bottom of my gumbo pot has done a number on my hands and on this pot. This thing is gonna last a long time, it's just fine. So when I put it away, I open up the cabinet and I chunk it in there. Now, that's the husband. The wife, however, is more akin to this artisan plate that we have in the cabinet above the microwave where the kids can't get it, okay? Like, this thing is so delicate, it's so 
It's so fun. You, you take it out and you handle it like this. <laughs> you put it on the counter. Whew, okay. The weaker vessel, right? This is a beautiful plate that we take out when you come over and, you know, if, if we like you a lot. If we like you, we'll take out this artisan thing and we'll put pants on our kids. <laughs> so the husband is like the gumbo pot. Junk. But do you see the word honor in 1 Peter 3? Honor your wife as the weaker vessel. You show her honor. You handle her like fine, delicate china. She's the weaker vessel in that regard. Do you see also verse seven, it says that she is, husbands, you listen, listen to this, she is your co-heir in the grace of life. You are not in any way superior to her. You are not put in the leadership position because you're more apt for it. Rather, this is the particular set of marching orders that you've been given. Ephesians 5 just says by default that husbands are the head of the wife. This is just your role. This is your marching order. It doesn't mean that you're qualified for it. It means that this is the standard for you. She is equal before God to you. The two of you are co-heirs. So do not treat your bride with any air of superiority as you lead your family. The moment that you do, nullify 1 Peter 3, 7. And then the final teaching, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I have a baby girl, her name is Autumn Grace. And one day she's gonna be old enough to date. And so on that day, 30 years from now, <laughs> when a young man comes to the front door to take her on her first date, if he has been cruel towards her in any way, if he has hurt my baby girl in any way, if he has wounded my daughter in any sense and then has the gall to ask me for anything, the one thing he's going to get is a swift kick off the porch to the glory of God. <laughs> Likewise, husbands, if you've been unloving towards your wife, you have not honored your wife, you've not treated her as a co-heir, no wonder your prayer life stinks. It's because you've been mean to God's daughter and then you've had the gall to ask him for something. The way you treat your bride affects your prayer life. Now, what about the man who abuses his wife? I know that spousal abuse can happen on both sides of a marriage. In light of today's text in particular, I want to speak to men who are currently about the practice and unrepentant of abusing your bride. This text says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What did Christ do for the church? How did he give himself up for us? On the cross. This is what Christ did for the church. This is what husbands are to do for their brides. Now, when you assault your bride, who is the one who attacks the church? Who is the one who attacks Christians? It's the devil himself. So when you abuse your bride, you are being satanic. Spousal abuse is demonic 
and I rebuke it in Jesus' name. If you have been about the business of abusing your spouse today, the least you could do is turn yourself into the cops. I'll wait until they arrive. Turn yourself in. Suffer the full force of the law, coward. Then watch the gospel transform your heart as we walk with you through rigorous, difficult biblical counseling. I've seen the heart of the abuser transformed. I saw it last week in Dubai. I asked my wife to marry me with a song. Having grown tired of all the time lapse of interpretation, I just wanted to make music with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I played the song that I wrote for my wife, which sounded very American, very Jack Johnson-like with string slaps on two and four. And this brother in Christ played the song that he used to ask his wife to marry him. And it was all very Turkish sounding in a minor key. My voice was terrible, but his voice was amazing. In fact, when he was a boy, he was the one who was used at his mosque to give out the call to prayer. In Islam, the mosques will give out this call to prayer. And that was him. Now that same voice sings praise songs to God. He was a devout Muslim, as was his wife. He abused her, because this is, this is common in his context. This is not true of all Muslim marriages. I know that, but it is true of several Muslim marriages. You ought not erase those stories. He was abusing his bride. He had a murderous heart. While he was once working in the barn, he heard word that his sister had spoken ill of the prophet Muhammad, and so he was holding a pitchfork. He said, I swear to you, I almost went and murdered my sister with this pitchfork because she said what she said about the prophet Muhammad. He was planning his own act of jihad along with his wife. She was terrified. Then he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was radically transformed. So was his bride. And so his view of marriage was radically transformed. From his particular orthodox interpretation of Islam, his wife was lower than a dog. But by the Christian interpretation of marriage, his bride represents nothing short of the fruit of the gospel personified, the church herself. It's a huge paradigm shift in the way that he views marriage. And today, he is a pastor of an underground church that just baptized five people. The abuser's heart can be radically transformed. So can yours. If you've been abusing your spouse... Would you repent today? We'll wait with you as the law arrives. Come back to the text with me. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is a beautiful text that has its roots all the way back in the Old Testament. In fact, the very next verses, as you get to verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2, 24. This is a theme that began in Eden and culminates in Revelation. It runs the full length of every book of the Bible. This call began in Eden where Eve was given her name after the fall. Do you realize the, the, the name Eve means the mother of all the living? What a beautiful name. An incredible esteemed title. And she was given that name after sin. She was not given that name in her perfect state. She was given that name after the fall. She was the grand finale of all creation. God created everything. 
created everything and saw that it was good. He created sunsets and then he created Eve. He created snow-covered mountaintops and then he created Eve. She was the grand finale upon all creation. Ladies, you can use that later. And she was given this name Eve after the fall. She was the first bride of all brides. It was decreed there, Genesis 2.24, that a man would leave his father and mother. You realize that was given before there were fathers or mothers? It was just Adam and Eve. They had no father or mother, and they weren't yet father and mother. But this command was instituted there. He would leave his father. That word leave is important. Man, have you left your parents' house? Have you left mom and dad? Have you left mom and dad financially? Yeah, I told you this is offensive. Being united to your wife, the two will become one. This was ordained in the Garden of Eden. And then it echoes throughout the Old Testament. Old Testament words of prophecy that are sometimes enigmatic to us or shocking to us, like Ezekiel's shocking imagery, is often because he's conveying the people of God to an unfaithful bride. The people of God, Israel, were like the bride, and God himself was the groom. So when Ezekiel describes the unfaithful wife, he's describing Israel as she would pursue false gods. Hosea's own marriage itself became a depiction of the unfaithfulness of Israel and then the loving reconciliation with Yahweh. It was preordained of God that Hosea's wife would be unfaithful to him and that he would take her back. And God said, that's going to be a picture of my heart towards Israel as Israel would pursue false gods and then God would receive them back faithfully. So the people of God have been depicted as the bride, even in the Old Testament era. Then the very first miracle of Jesus takes place at a wedding where Jesus spares the poor groom the humiliation of having insufficient wine. His own wedding ceremony this brings us to today's text of husbands and wives representing Christ and the church, but it points forward to something incredible. Take a look at Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 6. It'll be, on the tech, it'll be on the screen above me if you want to see it. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The bride's fine, white, clean linen is a picture of the righteous deeds of the saints. It's a picture of the righteousness of believers who stand before God. What does today's text in Ephesians 5 say? It says in verse 27 that she would be presented, that the bride would be presented that the church would be presented to Jesus in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. We have this tradition sometimes in folklore that says that the bride wears white if she saved her virginity until her wedding day. All right, my bride and I saved our virginities until our wedding day, but I'm hereby going to say as the lead pastor of Highlands Community Church that every bride should wear white. Even the virgin brides have other sins they've committed. She's not sinless. That's not the point of the white. 
She wears white because she represents the church and the church is presented spotless and blameless before God. She wears white because that's the color of our spotless souls before Jesus on the day of redemption. That's why the bride wears white. So let every bride wear white because she represents the church before Christ. Amen? Now I'll show you more. Look at Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, verse 9, he says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. If my case hasn't been made clear, let this fully personify the church as the bride. Verse, Revelation 21 reads, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. I can't wait for that day. I've got a bone to pick with death because he took my baby boy. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. This is the wedding day. This is the hope of our souls. As the bride walks the aisle wearing white, she represents all of us. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. This is the marriage supper of the lamb. This is the wedding day. This is where our hopes are affixed. This is why, this is why the wife submits to her husband because she represents that, the redeemed bride of Christ, the fruit of the gospel, the church herself. Throughout this text, we as the church are represented in multiple metaphors, both the body and the bride. We are the body of Christ at work on the earth. Our multifaceted spiritual gifts complement one another such that we can reach our community. We are a diverse people with diverse spiritual gifts, and we're capable of more together than we are individually and apart. You are free then to do what I've seen personified in some marriages. I've seen this worked out in some way in which a wife would refuse to submit to her husband because you reject this text, you resent this text. I've seen this. I've seen wives who have subjugated their husbands. Have you ever seen this? You know a marriage like this? Have you seen a woman who has utterly dominated a man? He used to be a stallion, but now he's an obedient gelding who goes to his stall when he's told. That woman who has dominated this man, who has nagged him into submission forevermore, you'd think that she'd be victorious and ecstatic. She's not. She feels unloved and alone, and she's got this big, fat kid to take care of, only he's never going to leave the house. You're free to go back to that model for marriage, or you can try this instead. By this model for marriage, we can call husbands to act like Jesus, to act like Christ, and in my experience counseling marriages and in my own marriage, husbands, if you would get your stuff together, if you would repent from sin and act like Jesus, your marriage will be better for it. Do you understand? Oftentimes the bride is like the thermostat. She, she, she's the thermometer, you are the thermostat. By your personal walk with God, your representation of Jesus, you can set the tone for your marriage. Let it be one of holiness. Let it be one of holiness. In practical terms, lived out, 
My wife and I use this text and it is the guidepost for our marriage. She submits to my leadership. She speaks her mind. The last thing she always says after making her list of demands is, but I'll follow your lead. She's a wise woman. This plays out in everything that we do, financially, spiritually. So the Holy Spirit is the mediator in our marriage. When I'm being unloving towards her, if I'm just stressed out, I got the weight of the world on my shoulders, and I leave the house mad, I don't get past Starbucks where the Holy Spirit convicts me. And I squeal my rear tires to the glory of God and come home and reconcile with my bride because the Holy Spirit convicts me. Likewise, my wife is disrespectful towards me. She's just not feeling, she's not in the mood at all. I'll say to her, I'm handing you over to God. If I'm being unloving, she'll say those words to me. I'm handing you over to God, the most dreaded words in my house. And the Holy Spirit will convict. Okay, husbands, you can't force your wives to submit. The Holy Spirit will convict them. She has a relationship with God. She reads this text, believes that it's true. She'll walk in obedience to it. Just like you need to walk in obedience to it. You act like Jesus. Every time I hand my bride over to God, it doesn't take but a few minutes and she comes and we reconcile. And the final words of this passage are proven true. That a husband must love his wife. Wife must respect her husband. And the more loving you are towards your wife, the more inclined she is to be respectful of you. And wives, the more respectful you are to your husbands, the more likely they are to be loving towards you. Dr. Emerson Egrich's love and respect. So if there are husbands in the room who haven't been acting like Christ, you haven't been acting like Jesus, would you repent of that today? Would you confess personal sin before God? Confess it all. Jesus is the standard, man. Self-sacrifice is the standard, husband. Would you repent of everything in your life that isn't like Christ? to the glory of God, not only as an individual Christian, but for the sake of your marriage, and then watch what happens in your marriage. She has no problem following the lead of a man who has a clear conscience, who has integrity, who's acting like Jesus. She knows all about your sin, man. So would you be holy, sanctified, Christ-like? And wives, would you entrust your marriage to God's design to see what happens? And if you Look to all of this, and it's foreign to you because you don't have a relationship with Christ, married or not married. As we talk about Christ and the church, as we look at Revelation and see the beautiful hope of the spotless bride, the church presented before Christ, the perfect Savior, if all this is foreign to you, if you have no chance of joining in that beautiful wedding feast, today is your invitation, today is your engagement day. Become a part of the bride of Christ here and now and forevermore and know firsthand exactly what Revelation 19 is talking about and know firsthand exactly what Revelation 21 is talking about because you'll be there when it happens. Today's the day. Do you need a savior? Do you need a Lord? Do you need to be a part of the bride of Christ? Do you need to have your sins washed white, be presented before him without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing? Would you be presented before Christ spotless, Come now, Isaiah the prophet says, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be washed whiter than snow. Without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. If the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you, drawing you forth as the bride, summoned to the bridegroom, would you give your life to Jesus right now? Go before God as the Spirit convicts. God, I, be I believe in you. I want to be a part of your bride, the church.
I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I believe, John 3, 16. I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I confess, Romans 3, 23. I confess that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I confess, Romans 6, 23. I believe you, Jesus, when you said that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through you, Jesus. I believe, John 14, 6. And so right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, summoned as the bride to the groom, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, let me be saved. Let me be made spotless, without wrinkle, without blemish, washed white like the bride for her groom in Jesus' name, amen.